<clears throat> Think about a time you had to say goodbye to a dearly loved, maybe friend or family member. Maybe they were moving to a new city, transferring to a new division within the company you worked at. Maybe a friend going off to college, or a son or daughter getting married. The words you probably were speaking to them as you were saying goodbye were mixed with the emotions that you were feeling. Your heart was troubled and felt a little heavy. Maybe your stomach had some butterflies in it or felt a little sick. Tears streamed down your face. And you felt tired at the end of the conversation from all those emotions that you were feeling. Jesus is talking about leaving these disciples, and within them are those stirring emotions of them having to say goodbye to their friend. The disciples were confused and bewildered, and people in our culture are a little confused and struggling too now. Some of the research I read recently says that drug overdoses have increased 60% in the last year that they have statistics for. Suicides have also increased too. People that we live with and live around have troubled hearts. And these disciples, they had troubled hearts because of what Jesus had been telling them in these previous chapters leading up to what Jen read us. Jesus had told these disciples that he was going to be going away. He had told them that he was going to eventually die. He had told them that one of the 12 disciples would betray him. And he told Peter directly that Peter would deny Jesus three times. What we're looking at today is the seventh uh, teaching, long teaching section that Jesus has in the Gospel of John. The seventh long discourse that pretty much started in chapter 13, verse 31, and con continues throughout chapter 14. And it's this teaching that Jesus gives to the disciples, kind of interrupted with a few questions you probably saw. One is by Peter in chapter 13. In our chapter, Thomas interrupts and asks a question. And then Philip, and then Judas, not Judas Iscariot. And what Jesus is really sharing with these 11 disciples is that Jesus is trying to comfort the hearts that they have by describing that there is a place he is preparing for them in heaven in those first six verses. He's teaching them how to pray to Jesus. He's introducing them to a person that's going to come to help them. And lastly, he assures them of the peace that they should have because of what Jesus is going to do. And that first thing that Jesus is telling them about is about this place in heaven that he is preparing for them in verses 1 through 6. Now, we shouldn't be fooled by the chapter divisions here. Chapter 14 is just continuing on that speech that Jesus has started in chapter 13, verse 31. It just continues that right on. And Jesus describes this need for assurance that the disciples have. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. See, as Christians, sometimes we need a little more encouragement than the rest of the world because we understand the reality of sin in our lives and in the world. We understand and see evil in the world, maybe where other people don't. And we believe that there is an eternal place of heaven that's going to be way better than where we live now. And because of that, sometimes we need a little extra encouragement. 
And that seems to be what Jesus is giving to these disciples here. He gives them that assurance in verse 1, and then in verse 2, he gives them a description of heaven. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now, my translation I'm using says dwelling places in heaven, which is a good translation. Some of the older translation of the Bible will use the word mansions, which was pulled from the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the New Testament. But as time went on, mansion began to be a word that describes kind of a big, big house. And sometimes that would confuse folks that Jesus is creating these huge, enormous places in heaven for us to live. But we shouldn't mistake our love of real estate with the fact that Jesus is talking about a relationship here. His comfort for them is based on not the size of the house he's creating, but based on the fact we're going to be in relationship with him in heaven. He's preparing an abode for us or an abiding place or a dwelling place for us in heaven. And then in verse 3, he describes the effect of what he's going to do in verse 2. Verse 3, he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. When he says, I will come again there, that describes Christ's future return for the saints to take them to heaven. That personal, literal, visible return to earth to get us called the rapture. He continues on. And you know the way where I am going. And this causes Thomas to interrupt and ask a question in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Now, Thomas is one of those 12 disciples, and he's a gentle skeptic, maybe we'll say. Most of the sentences we have of him in the Bible end with a question mark. And he asked Jesus this question. And it's a good reminder for us, because it's okay for us to ask questions of God in the Bible, because we certainly see Thomas and other disciples asking Jesus questions. And Thomas's question of Jesus gives us one of the most clear and direct responses from Jesus about how we get to heaven. Jesus says in verse 6, Jesus said to him, to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the sixth of seven different I am statements that John records of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the light, I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life here. And Jesus' words contradict a modern teaching or modern theology that sometimes gets discussed called universalism which is a teaching where people say, well, God will find a way to save everyone. God loves everyone so much, he'll save them all. There was a book that came out about 10 years ago called Love Wins by Rob Bell, in which he kind of just said, hell in the Bible is not a real place. It's just kind of like a garbage dump, and it's not really a literal place people goes. And he said, God loves everyone so much, he's going to eventually save everyone was the premise of the book. And it caused a strong 
response from a lot of Christians and churches for, for two reasons. One, they pointed out that's not really what Scripture says. And number two, it kind of defeats the purpose of Jesus coming to die and the gospel if there is nothing that Jesus had to save people from. But that's a teaching that sometimes goes around called universalism, that God will just save everyone. And as much as our culture wants to value, you know, everyone's opinion is equal and we can all share our opinion, we want to respectfully disagree, we want to be postmodern and kind of say whatever makes you happy, do it. If it's true to you, then it must be true. Even though we live in a culture that likes to say those things and value those positions, Jesus makes it clear that there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. Notice the word way used in verse 4, 5, and 6. He tells the disciples, you know the way where I'm going. Thomas says, well, I don't know. What is the way? Jesus says, I am the way. Tony Evans, in his commentary on this verse, says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the universal point of access to God. There is no other entrance into heaven. If you want to know the Father, you must come to him through his Son. See, there's only one road to heaven, and it's called Jesus Street. And on that street, there are little dotted lines that say things about Jesus. One, that he existed and lived forever with God in heaven. That he was born of the Virgin Mary. That he was fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He died, he rose again, and then he ascended to heaven. That's the way to heaven, is following the Jesus street. And what Jesus is really telling these disciples in these first six verses, he's telling them that there is a better place waiting for them. And there's a better place waiting for us as we live now. And we need reminders of that as we go through struggles of this life, that there's something better waiting for us in heaven. One of the strategies I've learned to do in ministry is I always have a vacation planned and maybe even another vacation like eight months out or farther. That's just kind of one of my things to always have a future date where I know we're going to go somewhere and do something. Why? Because I like spending money to go on vacations. No, because sometimes it makes those long, tough days and weeks just a little bit easier when I know there's going to be a break five months from now. Just knowing that it's out there helps us kind of get through those tough times. Just a little something I've learned that helps me. When I used to go visit with Hazel Hand when she was alive, sometimes on a Monday or Tuesday, I'd go visit with her. And we'd talk and pray, and, and sometimes she would share about how life was difficult being 97 years old. What's my purpose? What am I doing? And some of the more comforting times were when I said, Hazel, let's read some verses about heaven. And I just opened my concordance to the back, see what talks about heaven, and we just read those verses as a reminder to her that's where she's going to be going in the heaven, and it was ministering to her. And we can do that for ourselves or for others as they're experiencing troubled hearts and going through tough times to remind us that Jesus has prepared a better place for us in heaven. 
And while there's a better place in heaven prepared for them, Jesus also talks to these disciples about how to pray. Jesus goes on a little bit more, talking about you know, the Father, and Philip interrupts and says, how do we see the Father? So Jesus describes a little bit of ministry, and then he tells them what to pray in verse 12, and then how to pray in verses 13 and 14. He says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Interesting words to hear Jesus say. See, Jesus' ministry was limited in time and space. He did ministry for about three years in that small region of Palestine not much bigger than Grant County and Adams County. If you combine those two counties, where Jesus lived and ministered was just a little bit larger than that. But he tells them, these disciples, they're going to do greater works than he. And what he means there is he, they're going to do greater work in extent. They're not going to stick to that small little area of Palestine. They're going to go around the world sharing the gospel. And not only greater in extent, but also greater in effect. And we see that in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, Peter steps forward, he preaches the first sermon, and 3,000 people get saved in one message. Some Bible commentators say more people got saved from Peter's sermon than in three years of Jesus' life, potentially. They were going to do greater works in extent and effect. The disciples, they're eventually going to go everywhere and reach more people and in more places. Not greater in quality, of course, because Jesus was God, but greater in quantity. So that's what Jesus tells them about how to pray, what to pray in verse 12. Then he tells them how to pray in verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now there's a caution here we need to have. We always need to be careful we don't take one simple verse and kind of construct a whole theology around a simple verse, such as praying in Jesus' name. And the truth is, there are a lot of amazing prayers in the Bible. Prayers from Deborah in the book of Judges. Prayers in Nehemiah. Those are some of my favorite, Nehemiah's prayers. Prayers from Mary in the Gospels. There are lots of amazing prayers in the Bible. And this one simple verse that's embedded in the context of doing ministry is one we need to be sure to align with other scripture that teaches us about how to pray. See, Jesus isn't giving us a magic formula for getting what we want when he says, pray in my name and you'll get anything. Ken Gangle in his commentary writes, obviously just saying in Jesus' name creates no magic potion for prayer. The culture in which these words were spoken took names very seriously. So much so that they equated one's name with the character, spirit, and power of that person. See, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying in his will to follow his will and to do what he wants done. 
We do ministry dependent on Jesus for prayer. Praying in his name is the mean by which we pray. It's not a formula. And Jesus tells us to pray in accordance with his name and what his name stands for. John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote four other books that are in our Bible. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, he says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we asked from him. Did you notice that conditional statement there in the middle? If we ask anything according to his will. If we're unhappy in our marriage and we say, God, give me a new husband or wife, that's not according to his will. His will is that we reconcile it and work it out. If we're, if we're not working and struggling with money and we say, God, fill up that bank account so I can pay my bills, he's probably not going to do that. But he will provide us a job so that we can work, as scripture says, to work hard. For a lot of my life as a young person, I wanted to be a professional golfer. From the time I was probably 11 or 12 to when I was 19, that was my dream. To play professional golf around the world, to be the best in the world, and that was my prayer. But that never came true. That wasn't God's will. I prayed it, and Philippians said, do anything in Christ, and you can achieve it, and all that stuff. That's all stuff I quoted. But it wasn't Jesus' will for me. But as I got older and started to pay attention to what God's gifts were and things like that, I started to think maybe I should be a, you know, a senior pastor at a church and prayed those things, and then it happened, right? That seemed to be God's will for me. See, in prayer, when we pray in Jesus' name, we ask what Jesus would ask. We ask for what would please Jesus. We ask for what would glorify Jesus. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name name. So Jesus is telling these disciples, I've got a place for you in heaven. I've got a way I want you to pray, but also there's a person I'm going to send that will help you, he assures them. Continuing on there from verse 14 <clears throat> into verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And then if I jump down to verse 25 and 26, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, with whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I usually tell a joke about midway through the service, but last week you laughed at my joke, so I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. Is that okay? <laughs> last week I had two, and you liked the first one. I didn't tell the second one. I don't have another joke today. So if you're waiting for it, no jokes today. 
What Jesus is describing here is the third member of the Trinity that he is going to send. As Protestant evangelical Christians, we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct, unique persons, but one God, one divine essence. And Jesus says he's going to leave these disciples, but he's going to send another helper. And he describes this other helper using a Greek term. There's three different ways to say different in Greek, and he uses the one that means another of the same kind. I'm going to send someone else that is similar to me. The Holy Spirit, which is God, just like Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit shares in that divine nature of Jesus, even though he is a separate person. That's important for us to remember. Three distinct, unique persons, but one divine essence. Sometimes I hear people talk about the Trinity. It almost sounds like it's kind of the Father that has appeared in the Old Testament, and then God now appears as Jesus in the Gospels. And then in the New Testament, God appears as the Holy Spirit. But that's not what Scripture teaches Three distinct persons that have existed forever, but are God. You remember Mr. Rogers in that land of make-believe? When the trolley would go through the wall. Is that what it's called, the land of make-believe? Yeah. And there would be the different puppets. And in the early years of Mr. Rogers, he played all the puppets. King Friday would be Mr. Rogers. It would pop up that it was King Friday. And then there was the owl. That was Mr. Rogers in there, too. And then the screen would shoot over, and somehow he would sneak behind. And then it was Daniel the tiger. They were all Mr. Rogers, but he would kind of appear as the different puppets. That's not how we understand the Trinity. God doesn't just appear as the Father. He doesn't just appear and, as the Son and then retreat. He doesn't appear as the Holy Spirit. There are three distinct persons, but one God. And what Jesus says here is going to startle these disciples, because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come temporarily. He was a rare gift that was temporary. He'd come upon certain individuals for a brief time, and then he would leave. But when Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to come and indwell them and stay with them, that was something new for them. And we learn about what the Holy Spirit does here in verses 16 and 26. When Jesus calls him the helper, the parakletos, or the paraclete, which are two Greek words put together. The Greek preposition para means to come alongside someone, and the verb kaleo means to call or someone. So this helper, the Holy Spirit, is going to come along these disciples and encourage them, be their helper. The NLT or NIV call him the advocate. They're going to be by the side of the disciples, helping them and encouraging them. And in this chapter, we also learn that that Holy Spirit, he's going to indwell the believers. It says in verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He indwells every single believer. 
And we need to remember the context here. Jesus is talking just to those 11 disciples privately. The whole world doesn't get the Holy Spirit. It's only believers that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ that get the Holy Spirit. And that's going to be a permanent ministry that stays in them forever. Every day I take a, a multivitamin. I take a additional supplement to help with the previous heart issue I'd had, and then I take another supplement every morning to help with some back pain. Those are vitamins I take every day that I swallow, and they, can we say they indwell me for maybe 24 hours? <laughs> but then the next day, you got to take them again. But the Holy Spirit, he comes and he indwells us permanently, and he stays there forever. But he also doesn't just indwell us. He reminds us of spiritual truth. In verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That ministry of the Holy Spirit started with guys like John that wrote this gospel 60 years after Jesus had lived. How did he remember all these stories and words that Jesus said? He had the Holy Spirit helping him. And even now with us, the Holy Spirit's in us, reminding us of spiritual truth, empowering us and helping us to live Christian lives. The context here is verse 15, where Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then he starts talking about how the Holy Spirit's going to help them to keep those commandments. Maybe we're talking with someone that's in pain and going through some tough times, and the Holy Spirit will give us a verse that pops in our head that we can share to encourage that someone. Maybe we're talking with someone that's going through a lot of struggles, and the Holy Spirit helps us keep from talking just so we can listen to them because they need someone to listen to them. Maybe you're talking with an unbeliever, and they've got some difficult questions, and the Holy Spirit gives you a couple ideas about how to answer those questions effectively. See, the, Jesus says that even though he's going to leave these disciples, he won't be with them physically, but he will be with them spiritually when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them and reminds them of spiritual truth. I remember one time when I was working at the United Way of Stanislaus County. <clears throat> I think I've shared this story a while ago. But we were a group near the front of the office, and there was a few of us gathered around. And I'm usually terrible about thinking on my feet and coming up with quick-witted answers and stuff like that. That's never me. You know, in a job interview, you're told, always tell them you think well on your feet. I can't ever say that, because I'm the worst at thinking well on my feet. But we're gathered around the front of this area, and the four or five people start talking about God or something, and they knew I had gone to church. And... Uh, the one receptionist turns to me and says, Christopher, don't all roads lead to God? And to put me on the spot in front of other people, usually I freeze up, which is always why I have a good detailed outline to help me. But I just spoke and I said, well, that's not what Jesus teaches. He says, and I quoted that verse earlier. And I walked away from that conversation thinking, man, I never am able to talk like that. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit prompts us and helps us in those situations. Because if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us right now. He guides us right now. And the result of these things, the result of this preparation that Jesus is making for them, the prayer that they're supposed to give, and the person with them, 
is going to lead these disciples to have peace, which is how John ends this section here. He says in verse 27, Peace I leave you. <clears throat> peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Now Jesus reminds these disciples that they're going to have some present struggles. And he mentions this ruler of the world that is coming, which describes Satan. When we did our series over the summer titled God, uh, Those Among Us, we looked at angels, Satan, and demons. And one of the things we saw in scripture is that Satan is in our world. He is the ruler of this world, is how Jesus describes him. See, when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 13, they gave up that right that they had to rule over creation, and they handed it off to Satan. And now he is here. But Jesus describes a future peace that they should have. A peace that's going to be based on him dying and coming back to life and forgiving their sins. And this isn't an empty promise he gives them. In chapter 20 of John, when Jesus shows up to the disciples three different times, he greets them. He says, peace be with you, is the first thing that he says to them each time. And peace for these disciples was something they knew about. It meant a positive blessing based on a right relationship with God. And Jesus is reminding them and reminding us that the peace of God we should have is based on what Jesus has done for us. We have peace with God because our sins are forgiving. He's telling these disciples in this room, I'm about to die the very next day. Come back to life three days later. And because of that, you will have peace. Not just because of what Jesus is going to do, but because of the disciples' faith in Jesus, they'll have that peace. Romans 5.1 describes that peace where it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because our sins are forgiven. D.L. Moody, he lived in the 18th century before they had airplanes and internet and all those things that made it easy to travel. He shared the gospel with, they estimate, over 100 million people around the world is what D.L. Moody did. He started the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, the Moody Church, a publishing company that actually publishes the Bible I use. All of that came from a shoe salesman was his job before he got saved. And he got hired with the boss saying, you can work here as long as you attend church on Sundays. That was the condition. And he got saved and led to that ministry. But he writes about this verse, verse 27, talking about peace. 
D.L. Moody says, This piece is the precious legacy of Jesus to all his followers. Every man, woman, every child who believes in him may share in this portion. Christ has willed it to them, and his peace is theirs. So, my dear reader, you need not wait for peace any longer. All you have to do is enter into it today. You need not to try to make peace. That is a false idea. You cannot make peace. Peace is already made by Jesus Christ, and now it is declared unto you. Because of our faith in Jesus and his death for us, we get that peace. See, we have the peace, we have peace with God when we have the peace of God. So as we wrap up our time together, we've seen Jesus' discussion with these disciples, telling them he's preparing a place for them in heaven to comfort them. He tells them how to pray in his name. He describes for them a person that's going to come to help him. And then a peace that they should have, not because of anything they do, but because of what Jesus is about to do on their behalf. And notice those four things. Jesus is taking their perspective from themselves, and he's putting it on outward things. He's taking the focus off of their troubled hearts, and he's putting it onto other directions. C.S. Lewis wrote a book titled The Problem of Pain, in which he talked about pain and suffering. And his basic premise in the book, which is pretty hard to say, sometimes it's easier to write things, you don't have to look people in the eye to say them, but he wrote this that says most pain and suffering that we experience as Christians is because there is a universe and we think we are in the middle of it. And that God should orchestrate things around us. And when he doesn't, that it causes us pain and suffering. But C.S. Lewis says, much of our pain and suffering is removed when we move away from the center. And we put God at the center. And we realize he's at the center of the universe. It helps us endure some of that pain and suffering. We still feel it, but it doesn't sting as bad when we know Jesus is at the center. And God's at the center of the universe. And that's what Jesus is helping these disciples do. He's helping them focus on that place in heaven that they're going to go. Helping them focus on a way to pray to do ministry. Helping them to look for that person that's going to come, the Holy Spirit. And to receive that peace that comes from their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your, your words <clears throat> that, Jesus, you spoke to these 11 disciples in that upper room. You prepared them for what was coming ahead. Thank you for these words that, that help us, too. Please give us reminders that you have a place in heaven for us, that we're supposed to pray not according to our will, Help us pray according to your will. And God, if there's anybody here today that doesn't have your Holy Spirit living inside of them, we pray you would lead them to place their faith in you, to believe that Jesus died for their sins, to believe that Jesus came back to life, and that through that faith, 
they can have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, indwelling them, reminding them of your word. We pray these things according to your will, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So I'll invite you to stand for the benediction, and then we'll be dismissed. Dismiss us from this place with your blessing, matchless and mighty and powerful. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.